0: We all suspect that there is more to our world. The boundaries are diffuse, but author Charles delint has been roaming around and beyond them for more than twenty years, first with heroic fantasy, then with quiet chills, now with magic realism. He's mapped the territories that most of us suspected were there but haven't been able to visit. He's created the fictional town of Newford, a largish suburban anywhere city, and people that with realistic characters who strive to make a living and creatures of myth and folklore. His contemporary fantasy redraws the literary borders between genre fiction and magic realism. His latest novel, Spirits in the Wires, once again extends these borders beyond reality to the unreality of the Internet. Welcome to the show, Charles. Thank you. Welcome.
1: I mean, thank you. (laughs) I'm glad to be here.
0: Charles, can you tell us what you first read that first inspired you to write?
1: Um, No, I can't, actually. Um... um I just, I read a lot of things when I was a kid, and I didn't actually, I suppose the best way to backtrack is say I never actually wanted to be a writer when I was a kid, so I'm not the, not one of the people that was, I mean, I always wrote, but I didn't consider it um, a career option, just something I just did, uh, and I shared, I, I would write little vignettes or poems or songs and share them with my friends, or, and I had lots of pen pals, so sometimes I just write letters, um, but I, I wasn't thinking of it as a career, I just did it for fun, and um, whatever I happened to be listening to at the time would be what I would be uh, influenced by. So a lot of it was music, things like Donovan, the Incredible String Band, Bob Dylan, you know, Leonard Cohen, Tim Harden, and uh, then there were all the books, you know, uh, and I think at that point it was probably more folklore, myth, and uh, Tolkien, of course, uh, William Morris, Lord Dunsany, E.R. Edison, James Branch, Cabell, just lots of stuff like that. But again, as I said, it wasn't something I was trying to do, uh, you know, to be a writer. I was just playing with words.
0: You started out professionally, I believe, writing heroic fantasy, didn't you? I would say it's professional. (laughs) I I started writing a lot of heroic fantasy. and In fact, uh,
1: Subterranean Press has just uh, released the first of three volumes of these early stories, which are... Rough stories, you know, it's uh, someone just trying to learn their craft. And the first collection uh, it's called A Handful of Coppers, and it's just all the the heroic fantasy from that time. But I wouldn't call it professional because I was just selling it to zines and things like that. These are these, you know, small magazines with a print run of, you know, anywhere from 300 to, you know, a couple of thousand copies. Uh, My first professional sale was a novella to something that sounds heroic fantasy, Swords Against Darkness. That um, was edited by Andrew Offit, uh, but it wasn't. Uh, my story was just a high fantasy story.
0: I I actually bought that book. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the 1980s, you were a part of the huge horror boom, but you didn't really elect to follow the path of many of your contemporaries, did you?
1: Um, I'm I'm trying to m- remember this. As a, I don't really. I mean, I've written a few horror books, but they're they're mostly under the.
0: Was it the 80s I wrote those? Yeah, I believe so. I'm trying to recall the title, and it's well, escaping me. It well, there was, like there was three. Malangro, right, which
1: I wrote in my own name, and then I did three more uh, Angel of Darkness. Uh, I can't remember the titles of the other two at the moment, but uh, which are they're all being reissued by Orb. But, yeah, it's... What was the question again?
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, talking about the boom of the horror... Of the
1: '80s, yeah, I, I think you know when I wrote Malengo, I never, I don't really consider it a horror novel. I mean, I guess there are certainly aspects in it, but uh, I just thought it was more of this sort of contemporary fantasy fiction that I was writing. Um, I remember I, I joined the Horror Writers of, Organ- Writers of America. I think it was called at the time. Now it's the Horror Writers Association. Um, probably, I, think. I guess, I guess it was that in the, it was in the '80s as well. Uh, that's because I liked reading that stuff, and I felt it was good to support them. And I ended up, I think I ended up serving as a vice president for a year or two, uh, with Dennis Etchison. But I was never really a, I've never been been a part of any clique, any group. So because you know that was all split into the there was the splatter punks right. and all this different thing. But I have I've always had friends in all the different groups. So uh in the horror field, you know, there was uh, you know, Dean Koontz and, and Joe Lansdale, people like this that I that I knew quite well. I don't think I was part of the boom, though. You know, in fact, the Sam Key books didn't sell hardly at all. And and by the third book, it just w- it came out long enough to, to disappear, and that was about it.
0: Could you tell us about the Horror Writers Association just a bit in that it was the object of a lot of controversy, and maybe you could talk about how these groups affect the writers, the publishing, and the writing. Well,
1: that was a while ago.
0: Um, I remember that the
1: the Horror Writers um of America, as it was called at the time, was, was something that was, I think it was started by the the Lansdales, Joan uh with a lot of input from Dean Koontz, And uh, they were just trying to get a voice for people, you know, for the writers. Um, of course, everybody wanted to have an award, um, and Dean especially uh, really campaigned to have that award be uh, not called the best, you know, the best novel of the year. It was to be just an award of merit, special award of merit trying to get it away from the, you know, what happens with the nebulas and, 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 uh, other award systems where it's this, you know, it becomes this competitive thing, whereas it shouldn't be, it should be just a supportive thing. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, positive. I think that, I think, I think that, that writers organizations can be very helpful when they concentrate on the business of writing and on helping, you know, writers s- s- get good contracts and keep good contracts and, you know, deal with things like e-rights and business like that. I think that they become a complete waste of time when, it's, when all the discussion is uh, focused on, on awards, on tie pins, on, on, you know, on all these ridiculous things that, that they get, well, ridiculous to me anyway, things that they get uh, involved in.
0: You've always been interested in music. Did your love of music and your work as a musician help incubate your career as a writer?
1: No, I wouldn't say so because I was, as I said, I was writing all the time, but I was just writing for fun, just for enjoyment. But what I seriously wanted to do was be a musician. And so I I actually spent my time doing that instead. Uh, I played, um, I played in bands on the weekends, you know, and I worked in a record store. I was just a complete, you know, music junkie and still am to this day. Um, but, uh, and how does it compare? It, I don't really, there was no, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a thing like that, it, that it was preparing me for, for writing. It was more that, that they're two complementary uh, disciplines that I follow. Uh, and I also do some visual art as well, which has kind of added another dimension as well. And it's just, that's how the, you know, so if I want to express myself, sometimes, you know, a song works better than a, than a story and sometimes a picture works better than all of them. You know, it just depends on how you're doing it.
0: You've also worked extensively as a reviewer. How did and does your work as a reviewer inform your work as a writer of fiction?
1: Um I don't think so at all. Um again it's everything you experience is is fodder for the, you know, the creative muse. It all goes into some little cauldron in the back of your head and and I guess for me, I just I believe it's the subconscious goes in there and finds what they need for the for the next piece that you're working on. The reason I review when I first started reviewing was uh, I was a complete unknown, and it was I was reading for these for these same kind of zines, these little small magazines that I was uh, trying to sell stories to as well. And basically, my theory was the more I got my name out there, m- the more name recognition there would be. Uh, even if it was just for a small review in some in some little tiny magazine, it could make a difference. You know, someone would see, you know, my name on a cover of one of those zines or see a, a book and they would go. They wouldn't remember why they knew the name, but it would be some kind of name recognition. Um, and I think that's really important for anyone who wants to be a writer, just to get you know, work, even if you're doing stuff for free for small community papers or for small review magazines, or I guess now on the internet, it, it all helps. You know, it's, it develops your chops and it also gets your name out there. The reason I do reviewing still is just because I can't shut my mouth about stuff I like. So I have a, a, a monthly column with the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which gets to cover about three books a month. Unfortunately, nothing more than that. But it's an opportunity for me to point out books That I'm really keen on, that I really feel good about. I tend to, I I very rarely will, you know, give a book a bad review. Uh, The reason for that is that I only review books I read all the way through, and I don't feel like reading bad books. So if it looks bad, I just if I start to read it and it's not working out, I just throw it away and read something else. Because I'd rather, I'd rather spend that time talking about good, good books than than cutting down, you know, mediocre or bad books. That's very easy to do, and it's just it's pointless for me.
0: I'm wondering if you could tell us about the origins of Newfort, what cities inspired it, when it was created, and why you've chosen to return again and again.
1: Um, the way it started off was I got asked to do an, um, a story for an anthology called Postmortem. And,
0: uh... And I bought that one too. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> Thank
1: you. Um, and do you remember who the, the, uh, the editors were? David Silva and... Paul Olson. Paul Olson, yeah. Um, and, um, so they they kindly asked me uh, to do a story for this anthology they were doing, and uh, at the time I, I it was it might seem funny for for a writer of fantasy, but I don't like to actually write about places I haven't been. Uh, <laughs> so even when I write about the the, you know, the other world, it's usually based on a kind of on a kind of landscape that I have myself actually been in. Even if it's like you know, because uh, it might even be like a Sahara type desert, well I've been in that kind of a desert, so I feel I can write about it with some you know some um uh, uh, belief or you know uh, some experience um so i wanted to when when they asked me to do this story, I wanted to write something in a huge urban center I didn't live one one at the time I lived in Ottawa still which is i think it's about four hundred and fifty thousand people at the moment um was probably less than and uh I hadn't lived anywhere. That had a large urban environment, so I decided just to make something up just for that story, just for the fun of it. I figured it doesn't matter; if it's a short story. I'll just make up the street names and stuff because I had visited other, you know, large urban centers, and I'd got that feel for it, but I hadn't lived there to to be able to write about it, you know, with 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 experience. You know, I didn't know which way the one way streets went. I didn't know the names of the, little, of the little shops on the corners, and it seemed just easy to be able to just make it up. And then the next time I got asked to do another story, uh, I can't remember what that story was now, but I decided to set it in the same setting. And that just kind of snowballed from there. And the reason I keep returning there is not so much because of the city, it's because of the characters. Um, Even though a lot of the short stories, especially the novels, will have uh, written new characters, like new new protagonists, um, in the backgrounds of these stories... There's this sort of re- repertory company that uh, I like to follow. Their gossip of their lives, and, and I do so in the background of the stories. So you don't have to, you don't have to read, you don't have to have read all the stories, because the main story is, is going to be new and and everything is explained for it. But there will be things going on in the background that, if you f- are familiar with the Newford stories and have been reading them all along, you will recognize characters, you'll recognize situations, you'll, you might. Uh, be as intrigued as I am as to, you know, who's Geordie going out with at the moment and, and you know, when is Jelly having her next showing and you know that kind of stuff. It's just stuff that that's not integral to, to the story itself, but it's fun to have in there. And it's a way for me to keep keep connected to the to these characters that are like almost like friends to me.
0: Could you talk about the concept of the other world and how it plays into your Newford novels?
1: Well the other the other world to me is it's a mix of a lot of stuff, but it's, I think of it as a real place, you know, other, other from our world. And it's just in terms of the, of the series of these stories. So there's our world and there's the other world. And there's also this in between world <laughs> between the two, which is sometimes just like gauze and you can just step right through it. And that's where, where the, the breaks between our world and the other world are the, are the, are the easiest to, to trans, you know, to, to go between. And in other places, uh, this middle world is, um, as wide as a continent, uh, but the, the the other world that we're talking about, to me, that's uh, it's a combination of the spirit world where the spirits live and come from, and it's also the dream world where we go when we dream, and we might not necessarily remember it, but but we still go there. Um, so that's why it's our spirits are going there. So it's like a spirit world, and I really like writing stories. You know, I do the stories where some of the characters stray into the spirit world and get compl- complications or arise from that, and it's also fun to have. You know. F- Creatures or characters from the spirit world stray into our world and and write about the complications that ensue from
0: that um, it's there's yeah, could you talk about the influence of Charles Fort to your fiction, if any um
1: nothing more than just that he wrote about a lot of weird things and i and I like weird things, so i you know it's um probably the the largest sort of philosophical influence or one of the large ones in my writing certainly uh, it would be someone like Colin Wilson uh who wrote the outsider back when he was just a kid and um has written a lot of interesting books since then and uh i just i just like a lot of his philosophies so that sometimes that stuff will show up in my books you know the uh the idea that uh oh that there's a faculty x i think he calls it in his books that um that some people have that 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 it's a, but it's a very thin line, and, and you might it might push you towards genius, or it might push you towards uh, sociopathic tendencies instead. It's it's just an interesting thing to to look at, and also his uh, just his ideas of how we kind of sleep our way through lives, our lives, and then s- suddenly something. I think he calls it uh, ab- absurd good news. In other words, you'll for no reason at all you'll be you'll be depressed, or you'll be just sort of lost in your world because you're half asleep and. And you know, a sparrow will fly by your window and it catches your eye and it does something, it triggers something in your mind and you wake up for a moment and then when you've woken once you're awake things are, are obviously much more interesting than when you're kind of shambling through life half asleep. Uh, have you had any
0: experiences of the other world?
1: No. Not that I know of. I don't remember my dreams though, you see, so that's the problem.
0: Your 2001 novel, The Onion Girl, seems to be something of a watershed novel for you. How do you mean? Well, it's very dark and disturbing, but not necessarily in the mode of a horror novel.
1: No, it's because, well, just for for listeners who aren't familiar with the book, basically I was trying to explore uh, the idea in that book of uh, of a really traumatic childhood experience and how that would affect totally you know, have a different effect on two different people. In other words, they would have the same experience, but, but one would try to t- give it a positive spin and one would just kind of go with the, uh, with the ugliness that ensued. It was, um, you know, it's, um, in the case of these characters, it was uh, abuse as kids. And um, uh, the main character, Jilly, uh, kind of tried to put a positive spin on it. And it but that kind of thing never goes away. You know, you have to deal with it. Everything, everything we, in our lives has to be dealt with. And so uh, that, that particular book is, is her dealing with it. And the other characters, her sister Raylene and her sister Raylene, rather than trying to put a positive spin on it, just kind of, you know, she just takes the easy route and, and, uh, and a lot of sort of bad things happen in her life.
0: Your influences in that novel seem to be as much Andrew Vox as they are in Stephen King.
1: Well, I don't really think Stephen King is an influence except that, you know, I like his writing and and he's probably taught all of us a bit m bit of writing with a lot of immediacy. Um Andrew Andrew has been a inf- big influence on me just in terms of uh through knowing him and and uh and the, the battles he fights and um the you know the, the strength he brings to them, you know, makes you makes you realize the importance of what he's doing and uh makes you want to be able to 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 contribute something to the struggle um in my case i I believe i approach things those kind of things from a very different perspective than andrew does but although you know we're kind of fighting for the same thing in the in the long run which is the fact that that nobody has to go through that stuff anymore nobody has to uh be in a relationship or or be a child that that is uh uh, you know um, abused you know it's just it's uh especially for children it's just when you think about it it's just uh these are our treasures. These are our. This is our future, and you know we should be protecting them, not hurting them.
0: The onion girl seems to have inspired you to some real life activism, hasn't it? It's on your web page a bit. Well,
1: that's been there right so from the right from for quite a long time. All that material, and it, it's changed from time to time as uh, as uh, different things come come up. You know, I can't remember exactly what 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 I've got up there at the moment. We had a we had a, a boycott of. Uh, a material coming from Thailand at one point, uh, trying to, you know, uh, bring awareness about the sex trade that's there. Um, and, um, that, that, that boycott is kind of finished because the points were made. It hasn't been solved obviously, but you know, when and it's been moved on to some other material now, um, it's, but that, that stuff has been going on in my books. I mean, you know, you look at the onion girl and you think, well, okay, that's what that, that's being told in that book. But, I mean, as far back as uh, the first Newford book, which is pretty much Dreams Underfoot, um, there's stories that deal with that in that book.
0: Um, you talk a lot about family and community in Newford, don't you? Mm-hmm. You have a different idea of family. Could you talk about the family that you choose?
1: Well, it's just that, you know, I mean, family of choice should, shouldn't, be considered any less relevant or or important than the family that you're born into. And in some ways, I think it's more important because you choose that family. You know, you choose that support system. Um, The family of blood that you're born into, you don't choose that, and it doesn't always turn out um, pleasant for everyone. I mean, some people certainly have a a large, supportive, um, you know, happy family. Uh, But not everyone does. And uh, that's where the family of choice comes in because, you know, you can sometimes have that support network that you would have got otherwise from a parent or from siblings, and you're not getting it from them, but you get it from your friends. and It seems to me just as relevant, just as important.
0: Your latest novel, Spirits in the Wires, is a really fascinating extension of the concept of the other world. <laughs> oh, thanks. You take it into the Internet, and, and you have some really interesting ideas. Now, lots of cyberpunk authors have included voodoo spirits in their cyberspace, William Gibson, mm-hmm. Neuromancer, and Lucius Shepard and Green Eyes, but you approach the same concept from an entirely different direction. Could you talk about that?
1: Well, in that particular book, I guess what what, what you're referring to there is that I guess the, the difference is, is that I'm taking it from the point of view of some of those beings themselves. So that, you know, the... The Baron is is there as a as a character as opposed to, you know, a, a god that's being sacrificed to. He's there as as a character interacting with, with other characters from the spirit world. Um Yeah, that, that book is a lot of fun. I mean, I, I in some ways I I feel that it's um a stronger influence in that book would probably have been um um the book by Roger Zelazny and Jane Lindscolt called, called um Donnerjack, I believe it was called. Um which would which was Kind of a, a fantasy take on on the internet, which is what what my book is. It's not like the like uh, like Gibson and Sterling and those guys. Um, I just I was talking to a friend of mine, Richard Kuntz, in uh, in who lives in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, we were just talking about the idea of the concept of spirits and fairy and, and that sort of thing, and how they're they're usually in a woodland setting. You know, they're the spirits of the water and trees and mountains and the way the world's been going, you know, they're probably moving in to the, to the wires now. They're in the electricity, they're in your toaster, you know, they're in your computer. And anyone who, uh, who owns a computer probably believes that there are gremlins and goblins in the computer. The kind of funny thing that's happened with this particular book coming out, well funny, is that, uh, the week it, it was released, um, three of my computers got hit by that Love Sand virus, and, uh, I also had problems with my phone lines that week, and then the blackout happened that, that hit uh, the much of the East Coast and hit my, the province of Ontario where I live. And even on this particular tour that I'm doing for the book, uh, uh, three out of the four hotels that I've been staying in so far have had the my reservations canceled, but but nobody's taking uh, uh, responsibility for it. They're, they're all saying, well, we didn't do it. Well, we didn't do it. And the last hotel I stayed in was a place called in, in La Jolla, um, I couldn't, I couldn't connect to my home, uh, exchange, you know, the, like the area code, uh, it wouldn't work. The hotel couldn't get it to do it. And then they finally contacted their telephone company and their telephone company could not connect to my home exchange. Uh, you dialed one of those numbers and you'd end up going to LA or who knows where. So I've, I've had, <laughs> I've had these spirits now kind of following me around on this, on this tour as well. It makes me wonder about writing the book.
0: Your other world effects uh, come from the characters rather than happen to them.
1: Um, um, yes and no, I guess. I, I I don't think of it that way. I What I think of, when you mentioned Stephen King earlier, a reviewer once said about one of my books, something that I liked, it was that uh, I was doing for fantasy what King did for horror. In other words, I'm just bringing it into the real world. Um, and what I'm interested in, I'm not interested in, magic for the sake of magic or elves or fairies or all that kind of thing for the sake of of what they are i'm interested in how people react to that intrusion into their lives that's what interests me it's um because it's it's if you think about it it's just a mind-blowing uh experience That even or it doesn't have to be it can be a ghost it can be anything mysterious or to, to actually think that this stuff is real, to find out that it's real for for you know, a human being would be uh, a hugely confusing and exhilarating experience and it would change your life because it would be a huge thing. And So I like to explore those aspects of it. Sometimes I explore dark ones and we've been talking a lot about that, but I don't want to get listeners unfamiliar with my work to think that there's a lot of darkness in my books because there's also a lot of uh, very whimsical stuff as well. I mean, um, the very first story that I... Uh, started playing with this whole idea of the, of the s- gremlins and things in the internet was a, a story called pixel pixies. And it's about just kind of some kind of, you know, son of sort of trickster, merry prankster pixies, uh, living on the internet and they come into this person's computer and start causing a bit of havoc in their, in their house, in their neighborhood. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's rather than being dark, it's kind of a, a humorous, um, humorous stuff. So there's, it's not all darkness is it's the point I'm trying to make.
0: Oh no no there's quite a bit of of spiritual and positive aspects to this work as well.
1: Yeah, well thank you. That, well that's actually what I what I what I'm interested in doing. I find that a lot of a lot of books don't seem to have hope in them or like saying a positive feeling and I think that's important to put put forward. It's you know you could say well that's not realistic, you know that that good things don't always happen to good people and you know things things go wrong and, and they don't get any better and I agree that happens a lot in the real world but I also think that it'll, it'll it'll be worse if we don't have hope in our lives as well and I think it's a very important uh aspect to put in um I know Dean Koons has been been accused of being a Pollyanna and he talked he's talked to me about it and and I know that that some people think of my stuff too as very sort of you know, everything's sunshine and light, and it's not. But uh, but I do really believe it's important to put that forward, you know, that whole idea that that if we pull together, that if we take care of each other, that things can get better. You know, it's it seems to make perfect sense to me. and it, it, it doesn't actually seem to translate into the world, but maybe we're not enough of us are trying it, you know. So uh, it seems to be a good message to keep putting out there.
0: You also make use of some Jungian concepts in this novel, don't you?
1: I do, but, you know, I'm not actually a Jungian scholar. I'm not a scholar of any sort whatsoever. (laughs) But that was just something I ran across, and I don't remember where I ran across it. I might have been reading something like Guspensky or or somebody like that, one of those, uh, you know, the the spiritual writers, and uh, ran across that concept of the shadow, um, how we cast it off when we're children and then we can reconnect with it and learn from it uh, as adults or when we're older. So that's that's about as much as I know about the, the the Jungian concept and and also I guess the the whole idea of that we share a subconscious. I I've played with that before too, but I've not I'm not a Jungian scholar myself. Only cuz not out of disinterest or because I don't believe or whatever, it's just because I just haven't had time to to explore it.
0: This novel r- reads like a science fiction novel but written from a fantasy writer's point of view. Well, that's
1: a, an excellent way to describe it. <laughs>
0: It's really enjoyable. Now, in Publishers Weekly, Judith Rosen reported that science fiction and fantasy represent nearly 10% of all trade books sold. But Jane Johnson, the publisher of HarperCollins' genre line Voyager, has said that she wants to split SF from fantasy in terms of how they are sold. This is on the basis of market research that said that 86% of mainstream book buyers bought a fantasy novel in the last year. She wants to make the books look more like mainstream or historical fiction and get them racked in the shelves with regular fiction. Bantam Spectra editor Ann Grohl said, we're going to kill science fiction if we separate fantasy. SF is struggling right now. It's much harder to sell. How do you feel about where your books are shelved? <laughs>
1: um, well, you know, everyone wants a large, large readership. Let's face it. you know. Um, and Tor Books, one of my publishers, I'm published i have three major publishers now in uh, in north america and tor did try to to market the books with a more of a mainstream look for a couple of novels i think it was Tra- trader was one of them and uh Place to be flying and it it just didn't it just didn't seem to work out you know those books are are remain popular among my readers if if my email and the people who come to the to events and signings are, are to be believed and i'm going to believe them but in terms of sales, it didn't do anything at all until they went back to a more fantasy-oriented artwork on the cover with, you know, actual people and characters. It. And um, then the sales just been going, like, steadily up since then. So it's a frustration. You know, again, I'm going to go back to another reviewer. Another reviewer described my books as fantasy for people who don't normally read fantasy. Um And I know I have a huge, I have the potential of a a large readership in the mainstream, just simply from, again, from email I get where where people say I don't read fantasy, and I would never buy a book with with that kind of a cover, but someone got me to read one, and now I've bought all your books, and I will continue to buy them. And that just tells me that that that, that market is out there, you know, I mean... uh, and I don't want to say, say anything bad about my, my fantasy readers, you know, the ones who are the diehard fantasy readers, because they've been very supportive and I wouldn't want to lose them. But I would like to figure out a way to let the mainstream readers know that that there's, that there's it's interesting, uh, that there are interesting things to be read, not just in my books, but in, you know, people like Terry Wendling, And um, there's a new book that just came out called uh, Coyote Cowgirl by Kim Antio, a wonderful book. And, you know, you... You don't have to be a fantasy reader to, to appreciate it. You just have to be a, a person who likes to read a good book.
0: Could you tell us who we should be reading?
1: Well, I don't. I don't think I should tell you who you should be reading. You know, I I, I think that uh, uh, I think you'd enjoy like Kim's book or um, or Terry Winling's The Woodwife. Um w- Things that I like to read. I mean, I read all sorts of. I read right across the board. Uh, a, a reader, a writer I love, who is a mainstream writer, is Alice Hoffman. Uh, but she also writes books that are that could could be considered fantasy novels as well her uh i 'm just in the middle of reading her last adult novel and i can't remember the name of it but um earlier earlier this or I, last month i i finished reading a book of hers called Green Angel, which is just probably one of the most perfect beautiful books i've read in in many many years and i'd highly recommend it to anyone uh it's marketed as a YA book but it's uh it's not a you know it's an, it's an any age kind of book there's there's so much out there that that's worth reading you know and, and i guess that's the hardest thing that's why we have genres i suppose is that it's people like a certain kind of feeling in a book and um they're going to go out they're going to want more of that book it's, you know a person likes to read excuse me mysteries and uh they don't want to look through all the books in the books, or they want to go to the mystery section, you know, and the, the fanciers want to go to the fantasy section. So it's going to be a it's a it's a difficult thing to do to break people out of their habits of doing it, to just go for a good book, uh, and because a lot of them will will enjoy the books when they when they uh, when they try something different. It's just to get them to try it.
0: Where should we look for your work next?
1: You want I have coming out next? Yes. Um... Well, I've just, uh, there's a bunch of different things happening. I, as I said, I have three publishers at the moment. The uh, tour is doing my kind of my, my adult novels. Um, I've been working with a company called Viking. Um, and they've, uh, just this past summer, published a book called, uh, a circle of cats, which is a collaboration with a longtime friend of mine, Charles Vess, a uh, wonderful artist. And it's a, oh, a picture yes. book for kids. And, um, and they're also, I'm working on a, on a YA novel for Viking at the moment. That's my next, that's the project I'm in the middle of at the moment. Uh, then I also work for a, a publisher in uh, Michigan uh, and uh, Subterranean Press, they're called. And this is a, this is an interesting thing for me because it's a, you know, the the New York publishers are big and they are looking for a certain kind of book and a certain kind of sales on it. And sometimes books just don't have that necessary that potential uh, so Subpress fills fills a niche that that other people aren't doing. So I, I do two two kinds of books with them. One is the kind of book that uh, it was a book called Seven Wild Sisters I did last um, last year with Charles Vass, and it's a, an illustrated adult novel, uh, which you just don't get much anymore. And no, and no. and the, the the main publishers don't, or the you know the the New York publishers don't really know what to do with that kind of a book. Uh, it was also a short novel. It was like something like thirty two thousand words. But it's you know it's a lovely book and it's you know it's it's at a print now I think it was at a print before it was was published, although the story is available in my collection Tappy the, the Dream Tree, but the uh, you know the art is just is just wonderful. So I'm at the moment I'm just I, I finished a book called Medicine Road, which is it takes Seven Wild Sisters is about these seven seven red haired girls that live in the kind of a you know the Appalachian Mountains kind of a setting. And so the Net Medicine Road is about the two of those girls that were uh, musicians, and they're on the road in Arizona. So it's a bit of a road trip that they take. And uh, Charles Vess, again, is, is illustrating it, and he's working on those illustrations as we speak, I hope, because <laughs> I'd like to see it come out in December. Uh, and other than that, there's just a lot of reprints coming out. Vikings are Viking under their Firebird imprint is bringing back into print uh, The Harp of the Grey Rose and uh, some other early fantasies. Subpress is doing a hardcover of Heart of the Gray Rose*, and they're doing *Moonheart* in a special limited hardcover edition in a in a few uh, over the next year or so. I think it'll be coming out late next year. And they're also doing a series of my early short, st- very early short stories from those zine years, and so three volumes of that. And I think the next volume of that will be coming out in the spring. And Tor is uh, just bringing back a lot of the books in in print that uh, that they published originally or that were published. Uh, uh, like those horror novels you were talking about under the Sam key name, they're coming out under my own name now uh Malengro's coming out um things like that, so oh. there's a lot of books, even though i'm I don't write as fast as I used to. It looks like I still write really fast because there's just all this stuff coming out, but it's uh you know it's it's deceiving
0: well, that sounds fascinating. We've been talking with Charles delint, his latest novel is Spirits in the wires, thanks Charles thanks a lot for having me.